0: how many of y'all recognize this? Anybody? Okay. I'll be honest, to this day, this game still makes no sense to me, okay? (laughs) And so for those of you who didn't have the privilege of owning one of these, let me explain it to you. The way this worked is it was a little replica of a football field with a metal top to it, and you had these football figures that you would put in their positions, offense and defense, and then there was this switch he would flip and when you turn the switch on the field started to vibrate and so the football players would move around in different places but it made no sense because the offense would go backwards the defense would run across most of them just kind of did this it's like why do people buy this right well I want you to compare that to this game the modern game of Madden 22 okay That's the game. And if you look at that, it's hard to tell the difference between that and the real thing, especially if you're immersed in virtual reality where it's all happening in a a virtual world. It's just, it's crazy how things have advanced. And so the fact of the matter is no serious gamer would ever go back to the days of electric football, right? They're done. They're over with. Well, it's a silly example. But the writer of Hebrews is really trying to make a similar point. Because if we truly understood the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we would never go back to any lesser thing. Even the Old Testament. In those ritual sacrifices, they were done by imperfect people. They were imperfect sacrifices that could never take away sin. But Jesus made a perfect sacrifice that resulted in complete forgiveness, in the hope of eternal life. You see, when it's all said and done, Jesus didn't come to upgrade an old system, he came to do something new. Rigid rules were replaced by the riches of his grace, and what was intended to be temporary was replaced by what is eternal. And I also want to remind you this morning that that's not only true for what Jesus did, it's also true for what Jesus did in you. Because He didn't come to improve your life. He came to transform your life. To do something new. We are His workmanships, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That He prepared beforehand that that we would walk in them. That we are new creations in Christ. that, That the old is gone. And behold, New has come. Jesus is our perfect high priest, and we are made perfect in his sight. Let's pray together. Fathers, we prepare to open your word. Would you humble our hearts? I think sometimes it's easy to uh, live in a world that revolves around us This idea of doing what we want to do because it's best for us. Expressing how we want to express because it's true for us. And and Lord, we lose sight. that This is not about us. This is about you. And we want to center our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on you. We want you to be exalted above all things. We want, want our hearts to... To be centered on you and not, not in any way distracted by lesser things. You have done something new. And you're not done yet either. Every moment of every day, you're continuing to do a new work of redemption. In our world and in our individual lives. So may we get a glimpse of that this morning as we look at your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I'd love for you to read with me. I'm going to read the first verse here, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually or a priest forever. I think it would be helpful to give a little bit of a context for where these first three verses come from in the letter to the Hebrews, because what the author is highlighting here is a, is a really basic and brief encounter that takes place with this mysterious character in the Old Testament. But from this encounter, and I hope you'll be amazed with this this morning, because although Melchizedek is is fairly unknown to most of us in very mysterious probably to all of us. There is some incredible truth packed into who he is. And the author's going to show that to us this morning. And what we're going to learn is that Melchizedek does not live in the shadow of mystery. He actually sheds light on the hope of the gospel. And I hope you see that very clearly this morning. These three verses look back to a a meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek that took place in Genesis chapter 14. This meeting followed a a very important rescue mission, which was led by Abraham himself. It it all began when these five Canaanite kings, led by the king of Sodom, decided to uh, rebel against the ruling government of that time. The truth of the matter is, they didn't want to pay taxes anymore. They had to pay a tribute to the ruling kings. They didn't want to do it anymore. So they went to war in a battle for their independence. But they lost. They were completely overcome by the ruling four king alliance. Much stronger than they could have ever been able to defeat. And so they were. They were badly defeated. And as a result, the the cities were plundered and looted of all the people. All the citizens were taken captive, along with property and, and possessions and provisions. Including Abraham's nephew Lot and his family, who were living in the city of Sodom at the time. So in response, Abraham, which by the way was not involved in this war, but because of what happened to his nephew, he gathered 318 men. Hey, remember who he's going up against? A four-king alliance, a multitude of men equipped to fight. And he goes against them with 318 men. What they did is they launched this nighttime raid. They caught him off guard. And not only did they defeat that four king alliance, they actually drove them some 100 miles north. 318 men drove these four king alliance 100 miles north to the city of Damascus. And in the end, Abraham recognized, uh, rescued all the people, all the provisions and possessions, and he even added to that the spoils of war, which had to be massive given the size of the army that he defeated. And it was on this, what was probably a two-week journey, based on how far they traveled, a two-week journey back home, that they encountered these two kings. One of them was the king of Sodom, who started it all. The other one was Melchizedek. So let's look at that encounter together. If you want to, you can turn to Genesis 14, or I'll have it up there on the screen, but... I want to begin reading in verse 17. So following those events, he encounters Melchizedek, and this is what happens. Then, after his return from the defeat of Calatomir, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley, which, by the way, is just south of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. So there it is. That's one of the two times we learn about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But the writer is going to now unpack a a whole boatload of truth that is found in this very brief encounter, beginning with how Melchizedek is identified, because he gives us information that was not included in that Genesis 14 account. What we learn from the writer of Hebrews is that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And the city, which was the seat of his rule, rule was called Salem, later become known as Jerusalem. The word Salem takes its meaning from the word shalom, which means peace. So from this we learn that he's the, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But we also learn he's a priest of the God Most High. And I want you to think about that for a minute. As we talked about this earlier, a lot of times when you think about Abraham and what he did by coming into uh, the land of Canaan, having been called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the impression that we get in our minds is that he and those related to him are the only ones worshiping God. Because the land is filled with pagan worship then all of a sudden, out of that land of pagan worship is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who worships Most High God. Now, as if that wasn't impressive enough, there's some extraordinary things that are happening here. First of all, we learned that not only is he a king of peace and a king of righteousness, he is a priest of the Most High God. The only only reason this uh, account takes place is because, according to the Old Testament law, no one could serve as both priest and king. It said the priest had to come from the tribe of Levi, and no priest could ever serve as king. But here we have Melchizedek, keeping in mind that he exists before the tribe of Levi ever became known or existed at all. In fact, the author says that we know nothing about Melchizedek's lineage at all. It says that there's no genealogy, no father, no mother, no beginning, and no end. Melchizedek was the one who greeted Abraham with a blessing. We learn from the Genesis 14 account that he, he brings out both bread and wine. And in response, Abraham gives him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all he has, which again is remarkable because you'll remember, Abraham brought back all the spoils of war. And it's not as if Abraham wasn't already wealthy. Back in chapter 13, verse 2, we learn that he was very rich in livestock and in gold and in silver So in exchange for bread and wine, Melchizedek gives Abraham what amounts to hundreds, maybe even thousands and thousands of dollars worth of goods. And so we ask the question, why? Am I good now? Why? Why such an inordinate gift in response to that blessing? It's because of this. Abraham knew that in that moment, he was in the presence of someone much greater than himself. As we will later learn, he is the lesser, having been blessed by one who is greater. And not just because of who Melchizedek is. What makes Melchizedek important is who he represents. We see that in verse 3 where it says, He was made like, or some tra- So Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. So Melchizedek foreshadows the coming Messiah. Or or more simply, Melchizedek points us to Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is the divinely appointed priest and king who has no beginning and he has no end. He's the king of righteousness who came... To establish a righteous kingdom. He is a prince of peace. Who came to bring reconciliation to the world. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Who offered his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Just a little interesting side note here. Uh, This is bonus material by the way. Um, If you think about communion. uh, uh, A meal... Ordained by Jesus to commemorate his death and resurrection. What did he use to symbolize that? Bread and wine. Just like Melchizedek. Why? Because he's the greater. and He brings a blessing to us, the lesser. The blessing is his body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's look at verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect the tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are all descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I know sometimes when you read through these passages, it can appear very confusing, so let me simplify it for you. The more we learn about Melchizedek, the more we understand Jesus. That's the point. That's the entire point of this passage. Which is why the author begins with a, uh, an assurance not to minimize the importance of Melchizedek. He says in verse 4, observe how great this man was. Again, not because of who he is, but because of who he represents. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. The writer goes on to explain that it was Abraham who gave him a 10% tie, the 10th of all he had. And he goes goes on from there and explains that that 10%, that that precedent of that tithe is what was then carried on into the Jewish community as well. Because the Old Testament law requires the Israelites to give a tenth of all they have to support the Levitical priests. Even though they were all descendants of Abraham, the, the priests had a very important role in the life of the Jewish community. They were responsible for offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. See, they didn't go out and and get a job on the side. This was their job. This is what they did. And so God instructed the Israelite community to, to offer tithes in support of their service. But that tithe was intended to always point back to Melchizedek because it was originally given from Abraham as a gift in response to the blessing that he received. Even though Melchizedek was not connected to the Jewish community of all, Abraham, the, the patriarch of that community, gave him a tenth. Again, remembering that that gift was in response to a blessing. And Abraham, as great as he was, was first blessed by someone greater. Melchizedek was greater because he was a king before there were ever kings in Israel. He was a priest before there were ever priests in Israel. And even though Abraham was the one who received God's promises, what we see in Melchizedek as one who has revealed the fulfillment of those promises in our Messiah. He was superior to Abraham as well as the lineage of priests that ultimately came from him. That tribe of the Levites. He was superior to the Jewish priests because the author says they were mortal. In other words, their service was temporary. And it was temporary because their life was temporary. The Levitical priesthood was never intended to be permanent. But the order of Melchizedek was always intended to be eternal. So not only was Melchizedek superior to Abraham as a person, his his priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood as well. The order of Melchizedek points to something greater, something the Levitical priesthood was never able to accomplish. We see that point being made in verse 11. Look at that with me. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? He's making the point here that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect. It involved imperfect people who offered imperfect sacrifices that never had the power to take away sins. But from the order of Melchizedek would arise a priest who would be perfect. Perfect righteousness, qualifying him to offer a perfect sacrifice. Establishing everlasting peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. The imperfect has been replaced by the perfect. The temporary has been replaced by the eternal. Look how he continues in verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed... Of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. From which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke. Nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who was who has become such not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, meaning descendants, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him. Speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Old Testament priesthood was established based on Old Testament law. And even though it was an imperfect system, it was not without purpose. Its purpose primarily was to point to something better. Melchizedek represents what that better is. He gives us a picture of a priesthood that is ultimately the means of our salvation. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying, look, if it's not broken, there's no reason... For a change, the only reason a change would come is if the old didn't work, which it didn't. It never had the power to take away sins. Therefore, we needed something new. See, it was imperfect by design, and it begged for something better. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to impress upon us through the example of Melchizedek that Jesus is that something better. Again, not because he came to improve a broken system. He actually makes the point he can't. He can't improve a broken system because he was born out of the wrong tribe. He's not a priest, according to the tribe of the Levites. It says that he was born out of the tribe of Judah. It was from this tribe that the promise of a king who would reign eternal would arise. And we know from Scripture that it's very clear that Jesus, in fact, fulfilled that promise. He is the eternal king. But now we learn from Melchizedek, he is an eternal priest as well. Jesus wasn't a priest based on a priestly lineage, he was a priest based on his divine appointment, according to the order of Melchizedek, allowing him, like Melchizedek, to be both priest and king. The law was established, ultimately to reveal our sin, not remove it. It was a temporary provision, not a permanent solution. The only permanent solution, the scripture tells us, is the one who has an indestructible life. Which was only accomplished because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal solution that took the place of a temporary provision. Again, he didn't upgrade an old system. He did something new. He took that religion of rigid rules and he replaced it with the riches of his grace. What was imperfect was replaced by what was perfect. What was temporary was replaced by what is eternal. Melchizedek, I hope you'll see by what we looked at this morning, is not just some mysterious character in the the Old Testament. His life actually sheds light on the gospel, pointing us to Jesus, who is our perfect high priest, the king of righteousness, who came to establish a righteous kingdom, the king of peace, who brings reconciliation to the world and forgiveness of sins. And since this is true for Jesus, then we need to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? And I want to give you a couple of suggestions from our passage this morning. The first is this. We learn from our passage that the lesser is blessed by the greater, right? We, We see Abraham the lesser being blessed by Melchizedek the greater. Well, in God's plan of salvation we are the lesser we are the lesser having received a blessing from the greater that blessing ultimately being his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and as a result he becomes the source of all blessing in our life now listen to what paul says in philippians chapter 4 verse 19 he says and my god will supply all your needs according to his riches In glory in Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that ultimately Jesus Christ is the source of all blessing. Every good thing and every perfect gift ultimately comes from him. We don't need to rely on a list of rules. We don't need to find some formula just to kind of make life work. We don't seek our security in our finances. We don't find worth in our relationships. Our joy Doesn't depend on our circumstances. If we truly believe in the supremacy of Christ. Then he is all we need. To the point. That if any of those things were taken away. No matter how dear they may be to us. Our life would not be ruined. I didn't say it would be easy. But I did say our life would not be ruined. Because our hope is not found in our finances. Our worth is not determined by our relationships. There is joy even in the midst of our sufferings. Because Jesus reigns supreme and he is all we need. So if you believe this is true, life could strip you of what's most dear to you. But since you have Jesus, you will be supplied with everything you need. He's enough. That's why we can say as the psalmist does. Psalm 62.6. Listen to this. He says. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The psalmist is saying he's the source of all blessing. And we know that's possible because of what Jesus accomplished as our perfect high priest. The source of all blessing and the source of all hope. We're not relying on a temporary fix. We have a permanent solution. John 17 3 says this is eternal life. That you may... that." That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Only Jesus is a permanent solution for the problem of sin. Listen to how Paul describes this to us. And this is so important. So please listen closely. It says in Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when you listen to that, does that sound temporary to you? It is solid, perfect, permanent, and true. Because Jesus didn't come to improve your life. He came to transform your life. He is our perfect high priest, and we are made perfect in him. Just think about Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. We've looked at this one already. Listen to what it says. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, so don't go back. Don't go back to the old religious system. Don't go back to trying to earn your salvation. Don't go back to to all the things that we rely on for hope and joy and peace. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the source of all blessing. He's the source of all hope, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the power of your promises. Thank you that what you've done is complete. It is finished. It is perfect It is eternal. It is permanent. And Lord, may we live our lives believing that's true. By not trying to earn or somehow prove our worth, but see that our worth was proven on the cross. Lord, help us to to rely on that by not turning back to, to lesser things and where we find security or hope or joy, but to turn to you, the rock of our salvation. And in you, we will not be shaken. You are enough. You are a perfect high priest. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand together. As I'm sure you'll understand, some sermons are more challenging than others. I struggled this week as I worked through this passage. Part of the reason I struggled is because I had to ask myself, do I really believe this is true? I sat in some really hard situations this week that seemed hopeless and hard. And I have a tendency to put myself in those places and feel the weight of that emotion. And I asked myself, what would I do if I was in this situation? Would I cling to the counsel that I just gave that person? Would it be enough? I was on a jog later that week. And I really felt like the Lord kind of asked me an important question. He said, Who are you living for? And I'll be honest with you, there's plenty of times in my life where I might tell you it's Jesus, but I'm living for my marriage, I'm living for my family, I'm living for your approval. I'm living for a lot of different things, but none of those things are permanent. And so what the Lord was helping me understand was that unless you're living for me, you will always be shaken. But when I'm your everything, then I'm enough. And so I just hope that you take that with you. That no matter what your situation is, that you could narrow it down to the simplicity of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and know in your heart of hearts that he's enough and that he would be the one that you're living for and that everything that's happening in your life would ultimately center around him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this this family. Thank you for (laughs) their support. I'm not any different than those Levitical priests. Sinful people making sinful sacrifices. Imperfect people in an imperfect system. And I'm just like them. But we, as imperfect people, look to our perfect high priest. You are our everything. And we want to put our whole and complete trust in you. So, Lord, may we live our lives... So that we are truly living for you. And that all these other things that are important would be just the riches of your blessings. That are extended to us as a gift of your grace. But none of them compared to the blessing of being loved by you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.